Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. Luke 6, 39-40 He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. A question for us this morning. Do you want to be like Jesus? Like really, like do you want to be like him? I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm legitimately asking that question. I don't want to assume that, that just because you're sitting here this morning, that that is your goal, that you want to be like him. Um, I mean, I'm assuming there's at least mild interest that you're, you're here today to, to learn more about him perhaps or what it means to follow him. But genuinely, do you actually want to be like him? Um, he is the central figure of this thing we call Christianity. Um, he claimed that he was the son of God, um, that the entire Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, the Torah was all pointing towards him, that he was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies and all the things that were talked about uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, he claimed to be God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, and then we have these biographies in what we call the New Testament from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about his life, his teachings, the way he lived his life, his lifestyle. And then we have these letters written to different churches of people who decided that they wanted to form communities as followers of this Jesus, that they felt that he was the fulfillment, he was God. So they wanted to order their life around becoming like him, to follow after him. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we have this global Jesus movement that has been happening and continues to happen, and, and it gets persecuted in certain areas, and it thrives, and it just it's, it continues to move around the world. Uh, and so Jesus is this incredible figure, but the, the question still remains, do you want to be like him? Do you want to be like him? I, I'm mesmerized by him personally. I, I, I'm just captivated by him. I mean, he was fully present everywhere he went. He was always right there with the person. He was never distracted, right? His mind wasn't in the past or in the future. He was fully present with people. He was in full communion with God. He was constantly in conversation with the Father, right? He would often go off at times, be in the quiet place to be with God. That was important to him to really spend time with God. Uh, he, you know, he was compassionate. He was always moving towards the outskirts, moving towards the marginalized, the poor, the outcast, the orphans, the widow, the sick. He was always his heart seemed to just break and always constantly draw him to those people. Uh, he was always angry at the right times, in the right way, and at the right things. I really admire that about him. Uh, definitely a struggle on, on my part personally. Uh, he was perfectly balanced in his ability to call people out and call out their sin and yet call them to something more, to, to invite them to, in, in biblical language, to repent, to turn and go the other direction. He always seemed to have a perfect balance of doing that. He was never anxious uh, one of the ways I've heard it described, uh, Jesus described, is that he, he is love. God, the Bible says that God is love. He was love loving. That he was love loving. Anywhere he went, he was always doing the most loving thing to everybody around him. I mean, to me, he's just, he's just the most captivating human that's ever lived. And so for me, I want to be like Jesus. As I look at his life, I look at his legacy, I look at the impact he had on people that were around him. I want to be like him. So that leads us to our teaching text today, Luke uh, 6. I think, I don't know for sure, but I think this is the shortest parable in scripture, right? This is one of those long ones. It's really short and to the point. It seems pretty obvious. He said that he told him this parable, can the blind guide the blind? Can the blind lead the blind? Obviously it's, pre it's pretty obvious, right? No, no, that's not a good idea. 
won't they both fall into a pit? Yes, that's probably what was, would happen if you had two blind people leading each other. And he says in verse 40, a disciple, a follower, is not above his teacher, his master, or his rabbi, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. You see, there's this uh, idea in scripture called discipleship, uh, as we use that term today. When we, you know, Jewish tradition, there's rabbis and there's followers, disciples or Talmudines. And they, they weren't just trying to learn stuff from the rabbi. They actually wanted to emulate. They wanted to be like them. And in the end, if they were fully trained, as Jesus is saying, then they will be like their teacher. And so if you're here today and you're just saying, I'm following after Jesus, then one of the goals has to be, according to the one you're following, that you would eventually be like him, that you would start to have things in your life look a lot like Jesus, that you would start to have things come out of your heart, desires that would be in line with his desires, that if he were in your shoes, that you'd start doing things that you think would be Jesus-y types of things. I know that's not like a real word, but we'll, we'll use that today, Jesus-y stuff. Um, so our, our mission as a church, uh, we've talked about before, is practicing the way of Jesus. We want to practice the way of Jesus together in Sonoma. This is the environment that God has planted us, and we want to do this thing together because it's impossible to follow Jesus alone. And as we understand discipleship, which is just what that really means, we want to be disciples of Jesus, or in the language of others in our day, uh, apprentice. We want to apprentice after Jesus, which I think gets at the heart of really what that means. The way we understand that is that to, to, to apprentice under Jesus or disciple under him, that means three things, that we would order our life around three main goals, and that is to be with Jesus, to become like him, and then to do what he did or do what he would do if he were us, right? Uh, I know that was like a 90s slogan, like what would Jesus do, right? They had the bracelets, you know, the WWJD ones. But really the, the question is, if, if Jesus were me in my shoes and he had my disposition, personality, and my, la- my context and my relationships and my struggles and challenges, what would he do if he were in my shoes, right? I think that's the, the question we're really trying to get at in terms of how to live that out. So the question I, I started with, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you? Do you actually want to be like him? Now, if there's a, there's a, a spectrum of yes from zero to 100% yes, if you're at least on that scale somewhat, that's good. Glad you're here. But there is one problem, this desire to be like Jesus, one problem, and that is we must change. Because if you want to be like him, then implicitly that implies that you're not quite there yet. And full disclosure, neither am I. Got a long way to go, right? But if you want to be like him, that requires that we change. It's not like you can just wake up and tomorrow morning be like, oh, I want, yep, I'm going to be like Jesus. Like that's easy Monday morning stuff. Like I'm good. I'm just going to decide to be like him and all the good stuff's going to come out of me. Like I'm there, right? That, that's just not what it's going to take. It's, it's not possible. We have to change or in the language in the New Testament, we have to be transformed, Right? It's not just a slight adjustment, it's a complete transformation. Uh, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Like we're looking at God, we're looking at Jesus, and we're being transformed, there's that word, into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now that word transformed in the Greek is metamorpho, or where we get our word metamorphosis. Right, a complete transformation. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it uh, like this, a profound change in form from one stage to the next, similarly to uh, what it looks like for a caterpillar that goes to a pupa, that pupa eventually becomes a beautiful adult butterfly. There's a transformation, a metamorphosis that must happen if we're going to actually be like Jesus, we're going to become like him. So the question before us today is, is that kind of change possible? Like, is it actually possible to become like Jesus. It sounds good and 
But then when you really look at his life, you really read the way he lived his life, it, it seems like this really high bar, like almost impossible. Can it actually, that kind of change really happen in our life? Because, you know, we all have our patterns of behavior. We all have who we are, family of origin, disposition. Like, can we actually be transformed into Jesus? And if so, then of course, the million dollar question is how? how? How do we change? How do we actually become like Jesus? So let me ask you guys a similar but different question. Um, there's, we've got like musically inclined people in this community. Like anybody in here want to be like the world's greatest guitar player, right? Anybody have that desire perhaps, or maybe, uh, maybe, I don't know, world's greatest writer or general contractor, maybe world's greatest parents or spouse. Now, maybe not greatest cause it, that sort of implies a little bit of like pride perhaps maybe, or like a, maybe an unhealthy ambition. Cause if you look at the greatest in any one field of life, usually they have like a unhealthy, like fanatical approach. Like they just go after it so hard. They don't have relationships. You know, I think about people like Michael Jordan. I don't know if you ever saw like the documentaries on him, but he just wasn't a good guy to be friends with. Like he was an amazing basketball player, but like not a really great person. Like Steve Jobs, like did amazing things in the tech world, but really not a great guy in terms of relationships. So maybe not the greatest, but do we want to at least be better, right? Do you want to be a better guitarist, maybe a better parent, better spouse, better writer, better contractor, better whatever it is that you do? Okay, well, if you do, then how? How would you get better? Uh, maybe you would read some books, attend some seminars, uh, watch some videos online, maybe listen to some podcasts, might even get a mentor in that particular area, someone who can teach you and show you how to do it. Um, that, that would be a great start. But would that be enough? Would it be enough just to read the books and watch the videos and go to the seminars and learn all about it? Would that make you a better fill-in-the-blank? No, of course not. That wouldn't make you better. Like if you want to actually get better, then you would actually have to do the stuff. Like you'd actually have to pick up the instrument and start learning some new chords. You'd have to start, uh, you know, writing stories or at least sentences and paragraphs. If you want to be a better writer. You'd have to start building some things if, as a contractor. You'd have to be a better spouse. You actually have to start talking with your spouse. You know, you have to start putting into practice the tools you've been learning for wherever it is you're learning those from. If you want to be a better parent, you can't just think the thoughts of a better parent. You actually have to get in there and spend time with your kids and be present with them. Like, you actually have to do the things it requires to be better in those areas. And in a word, what we're talking about is you have to practice. You actually have to like put in the work and do the stuff repeatedly in order to eventually be transformed to change, to become a better version of whatever it is you're trying to be. So why is it that we often fall into this thinking that in order to impress under Jesus, that it's somehow different? Like we, we get into this thinking, like if I just come to church, if I just read my Bible enough or pray enough, like that, that should be enough. Like, why isn't that enough just to learn the things about God? So again, the question is transformation possible. Can we actually change? Uh, just to help us uh, to be on the same page here. When we talk about transformation, we talk about spiritual formation to be able to change. Uh, what are we talking about? Um, Dallas Willard uh, has a great quote on this. It says spiritual formation in the Christian tradition, because there's lots of spiritual formation out there is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. So this is what we're getting at. This is what we're talking about as far as transformation. We want to be formed into the image of Jesus. But here's the other thing too we have to be really clear on. Spiritual formation is not a specific Christian thing. It's just a human thing. We're all being formed, right? To be human is a dynamic thing. It's not static. We're, we're constantly changing. Who you are today is not who you were a couple weeks ago. It's certainly not who you were a few years ago or decades ago. You're very different today than you were then. You were, we're always in a constant state of change. We're not static. Uh, we were formally, we're being formed continuously. And so 
to understand formation, we have to get our minds wrapped around that we're all disciples. Not just as Christians, but we're all disciples. The question is, what are we being discipled to? Who's discipling us? What are we being discipled by? We're all becoming like something or someone. The question is who? Who is that that we're being formed into? So today I want to just kind of at a high level, before we start jumping into practices, we're starting a new series today on the Sabbath practice. But before we jump into that, I want to talk high level about change. How is it that we actually change? Like, how does this process happen? Because we know that it happens. We're all changing, but how? What are the factors and things that are, are, are impacting our transformation? So um, this is not um, capital T true, uh, but very helpful. I think this is a very helpful understanding. And this comes from a lot of different places from, uh, from scripture. It comes from uh, behavioral psychology and lots of different uh, fields. But there's unintentional and intentional spiritual formation. So first, I want to take a look at the unintentional formation? How are we unintentionally being formed? How are we being changed in our daily lives? The first thing is the stories that we believe. We all believe stories, right? We all have stories that we, we live out, that we are inherited to, given to us, like our family of origin. We get, our, we get a lot of stories about what life is really like and how to interact in life from our families of origin, whether that for good or ill, right? That's where a lot of that comes from. Uh, it's been said as humans that we are narrative animals, right? Uh, we are meaning-making machines. We, we have to have meaning and purpose in the things that we do, and that is often informed by the stories that we believe. Uh, perfect example of this. Uh, Chris and I, we love marriage, especially being married to each other, and um, one of our passions in ministry is marriage and, and, and all the things that come with that. So we, we like to do marriage coaching and premarital. Uh, it's, a, it's a joy for us to be able to give tools and equip others that are in that journey and we had some great premarital counseling when we were going through that process. And so, so it's one of the ways we give back. And so, you know, one of the topics that comes up in, in marriage, uh, probably not your guys' marriage, but ours, is conflict. Um, conflict happens. And so we talk about how do you handle conflict? How do you manage conflict? What are the tools and ways you go about that? Inevitably, both spouses always come into the conversation having some story that they believe on what does conflict look like? Like, how do you actually do it? And that typically comes from family of origin. Some families... Uh, maybe some of you grew up in a household where when there's an argument, it's you're going to get as loud as you possibly can. The loudest person's going to win. And when the argument's over, like, you're good. Like, I don't dislike you. Like, that's just how we do it. We just going to yell really loud. You know, maybe you like an Italian or Irish family, perhaps. Like, you're just, we talk really loud, so this is how we're going to deal with it. There's other families where you, you sort of sweep it under the rug. Like, we don't talk about the, the difficult stuff. Like, we're just not going to deal with that. We're going to just, like, we're going to, appearances are what matter most. So, we're not going to deal with that. We're just going to like stuff that down and move on as if it never happened. Now you can imagine in marriage, when you bring two spouses together, typically they don't come from the same story. They don't come with the same family of origin history. And so they have very different ways of dealing with conflict. And so one of the, the tools for us is to, how do we understand those and like rewrite those stories and come together for a new story? Let's, let's unlearn some of that stuff and get a new story that we can start to live out and believe. Because if not, then it's going to be fireworks and not the good kind in that marriage. There's going to be conflict and they're both coming at it from very different places and expectations of how this is supposed to go, which is going to cause so much unnecessary pain and heartache. Um, but it happens inevitably. So th th we all believe stories. Again, a lot of it comes from how we grow up. Second thing influencing us is our habits. Our habits, the things we do, right? We all have them. We, we have lots of habits, things that we get into, patterns of behavior, uh, but the things about the things we do, it's not just that we do them, it's that they actually do stuff to us. Like the, the more you do something, then inevitably it starts to change you. For example, um, I, I was not a coffee drinker until like I was about 30. 
And uh, I just, I didn't like the taste of it. I thought it was gross. And um, I had a job at the time. I was in a call center. So I was a couple of nights a week. I was making phone calls for, for client appointments. And in the call center, there was only two beverages. There was water and coffee. And so after, I don't know, about a year or two years in, I, I got tired of water. And I decided, well, let me just try this coffee stuff. And it was horrible. Like, it wasn't even good coffee, but it still didn't even taste good to me. So I thought, well, if I'm going to make this better, let me just dump a bunch of sugar and a bunch of creamer in here. And let's at least make this thing palatable. After a little while, eventually that habit of trying that coffee, I started to think, oh, this isn't too bad. Let me, let me, let me try it with maybe not as much of that sugary stuff. And, you know, and then you go to like one of those Starbucks places and you put in the syrups and all that stuff. And let me just kind of get rid of that stuff. And then I was just like starting to actually kind of like it a little bit after I kept doing this thing. And then eventually I got rid of the sugar. And then I was like, oh, let me see. What's it like without the cream? Like, let me just try coffee as it's brewed. And at first it was a little bit rough and but then eventually I kept doing it and that habit all of a sudden it started doing something to me to where now it's like, I really like coffee. Um, I do. And I think I've got about 15 different methods of brewing it at home now from espresso machine to a little, I got the fancy like pour, pour over like kettle with the little gooseneck thing. And I got the little scale and the whole deal and like filters and all kinds of stuff. It's a problem. I know. Um, I fully admit that, but it's interesting how that habit of just starting to have it over and over, over time, eventually started to change me. It started to do something to me. So now, unfortunately, I'm addicted to coffee and it's an issue. But we do things and then those things we do start to do something to us. Uh, the, the New Testament calls it your heart or your loves and your longings, your desires, your deepest desires. The habits you do can affect those things. Um, and the truth is, is that you are what you love. But you may not love what you think. One of the uh, things I encourage you to do this week is to take a liturgical audit uh, of your life. Um, that word liturgy just simply means what the people do. So what I'm saying is take an audit of your life this week, right? Um, in a couple different ways. Take a, take a time audit, look at your calendar and track. What do you do this next week? And every hour, if you can, check in and document that. I think it would be a very eye-opening experience for you. Anytime I invite people to do this, uh, it's one of those things you look back like, wow, I didn't realize how much time I spent on fill in the blank. Also take a, a financial audit for the week. How do you spend your money? Where does all that money go over a, over a week long period? And a lot of us, we have so much stuff that's automated. You have to kind of go in and look at your accounts and see where's it actually going. But take a look, they, like what are the things that you do and, and audit those things? Like what are you spending your time on? What are you spending money on? What are you thinking about throughout the week? And then take a step back and a week later, look back and see and, and take a look because that's your life. That's what you love. Those are your habits. Like whether you think you love things or not, when you actually look at how you're living out your life, that really reveals what are those deep desires and longings of your life. And the thing that I think we often get wrong is, is we have this idea that if we just think good thoughts, that that will affect our habits. But all of cognitive science, behavioral science, and psychology has shown us that nine times out of 10, the action, the habit precedes the thought. Like to do the stuff comes first and then it starts to change the, the desires, the longings, the thinking that's in your head. But we, we somehow been told that if you just think it, then it's, that's what's going to matter. So our stories, our habits, and of course our relationships, right? You've heard it said before, and even from this stage that we are like the people that we most spend our time with, right? Show me your five friends and I'll show you your future. We start to dress like the people that we hang out with. We start to talk like, we start to like the same things. We start to look, and sometimes we're influencing them, but it's, it's this interesting dynamic where they're influencing us at the same time. And so the relationships we have, the people we spend the most amount of time to are going to have an impact. They are going to do something to us. They're gonna do some kind of changing to our lives. Uh, and then we all do all this in an environment. 
We live in this place called Sonoma. This is where we find ourselves. And Sonoma has a, has a, has a thing. It's got, a, it's got an agenda for your life. I know it's not like a living thing, but you live here long enough, you're going to kind of become part of this thing called Sonoma. Uh, great example of this. So I first moved here. Um, I was having coffee, meeting people, and I noticed that like, all the guys were wearing vests. Now, this is weird. Why does everybody here wear a vest? And I asked somebody sometime, I said, well, this is like the perfect outerwear for Sonoma. I said, like, please help me understand what that means. He said, well, you know, the weather changes so much. You wake up in the morning, it could be like 50 or 40, and then by the afternoon, it's going to be 70 or 80. So the vest is great because you can be warm in the morning, whether you wear long sleeve, short sleeves, and then if it's hot in the afternoon, it lets you breathe a little bit, and you're good. I was like, okay, that's great, but I think vests are horrible. So I'm sorry, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to wear vests. And um, as I've been here now for just over two years, um, I have to say that I can see a little bit more now how vests might be a good idea. I still don't have one, and I'm still holding out, and I'm hoping I don't fall into that trap. But there's something about this place. Like, it, it starts to change you. Like, there's, there's the agrarian, like, uh, legacy. There's this, such an uh, agricultural community and for, for generations. It's been that, right? There's this wine and, and food industry. There's all these tourists. Over a million people come to visit here for all the beauty and all the things that are on offer. And there's just all those things are kind of working behind the scenes. And when you live here long enough, you start to, it starts to affect you, your pace of life, the things you say and how you say them. Like there's something about the environment that we live in that starts to change us. And it's not just our physical world. We also have these things called cell phones, this digital world that we live in. And believe me, we're living in it. These screens that we look at for hours a day, like the social media and the internet, like everything in the world we have access to, the world's becoming a smaller and smaller place. Like we're living in that. And that's also affecting us. That's the environment we're in. That's, that's dramatically changing who we are. And of course, all of this happens over time through the, the, the hard knocks of life, the experiences of life. And, and here's the thing, all of that has an effect on you and you don't even have to think about it. You don't have to wake up in the morning and put a plan together and strategize. How am I going to, you know, form myself today? Like if you just get up and you just go about your day, all of that stuff is going to be impacting you. The stories you believe, your habits, your relationships, the environment you live on, it will start to form and transform you. I would even argue deform you into a kind of person completely unintentionally without even you thinking about it or doing anything about it. So for us, if we're trying to be like Jesus, if that's our goal, that's who we're trying to be formed into. If that's what we want the transformation to look like at the end of our lives, then it's simply not enough just to come to church occasionally, even regularly, or to once in a while pick up the Bible or to pray we need something because we're going through a really difficult circumstance. Like that activity, even a weekly meal and communion, that alone is just not going to be enough to counterform and to push against those forces that are at work in our lives that are, that are changing us and putting us, in, and putting us in places to become someone. So how? How do we offset all of that? How do we become more like Jesus, the people that we really want to become. Well, it's not what you think. Uh, before we get into intentional formation, let's just two myths that we just need to dispel, I think, right away. The first myth is this. All you need to do is know the Bible. Like, if you just know the Bible, that's enough. Now, this, came, this line of thinking came from some different places. It started in the Reformation, which is like 500 years ago. Uh, this guy named Luther and many other leaders, uh, they, were, they were counteracting what was happening. There was this thing that was happening in the church where you had to do a certain things. There was this like works righteousness stuff where you had to like, you had to pay money in order for people to like make it into heaven and you had to like go to the priest and only they could forgive your sins. And all of a sudden these guys started reading scripture because the printing press 
made scripture available to everybody in their common language, not just in Latin, which very few people spoke. And they started reading the Bible thinking, wait a minute, what, wait, we, we don't have to like, we don't have to pay indulgences to the priests. Like it says that we're saved by grace through faith. Like we have direct access to God. We don't need this. So they, in a, in a response and rejection and, and, and swinging the balance, right? The pendulum was swinging away from that. They said, look, the only thing you need is, is the word and sacrament. That's it. And when Luther met the word, he meant sermons or teaching or preaching. He's like, all you need is to preach the Bible and the sacrament, which was a very like Catholic view of the elements, which is the bread and the cup. So that's all you need. If you just take communion and you listen to preaching, like that's going to be enough. Fast forward a little bit longer. And then we had American evangelicalism and they were like doing even away from the sacraments, even pushing further away against the, the Catholic uh, aspects of it. But what really brought about this thinking that all you need to know is the Bible is the Enlightenment. Enlightenment, French Revolution, uh, many things came out of that. This uh, Descartes had the famous saying, I think, therefore I am, right? Ma basically, his idea was that we were thinking things. That, that was his language for humans. We're thinking things. And, or another way, maybe more crassly to say is that we're just brains on a stick. The problem with that, I think, therefore I am, is that, of course, all behavioral science now has looked back and said he was actually wrong. Like, that's just not true, right? Because what he was saying is, if you just simply read something or learn something, that's it. You can just then go out and do it. But is that how we actually experience life? Like, if you just, like, read about it, like, you should be at peace. Oh, great, I'm at peace. Like, is, it, is that how it works? Like, you just, oh, I, I want to I wanna learn this instrument, so I'm going to read, I'm going to watch a couple of videos. Great, I think about it, I know how to do it, I just can do it. But it's just not how we experience life. So this idea that just thinking is not enough. Um, knowing something is not the same thing as doing it. And that's not even the same thing as wanting to do it. The deep desires, longings, the heart. Like, is it coming out of you that this is the action that you want to have in this situation? Like, is it just come out of you naturally that you love your enemies when they treat you poorly? Right? You, you can think that. You can know that that's what you're supposed to do. But do you actually do it? Or more to the point, do you even want to do it? when that situation presents itself. All that to say, to, dis to debunk this myth, is that we cannot think our way to Christ-likeness. We just simply can't just think good thoughts and therefore then we're going to become like Jesus. Unfortunately, if we look at the modern evangelical Western church, most discipleship is primarily an intellectual exercise. Like if you want to become like Jesus, like get involved in the Bible study and read your Bible or, hey, go, go read this book with this person or you sit down and talk and talk through some ideas. Most of what we do, the systems that the church has created have been catered towards the, the mind, to intellectual. And look, if I'm a reader, I love to read, I, I, I resonate with this. So I, I, to me, it's great, but it's not enough. Like we can't just simply think and therefore become like we want to become. The second myth which again was a response to this first myth, is that you don't need to do anything. It's all God. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, just let go and let God. Like, he's got it. Like, it's not even up to me. It's all him. Like, and this, if the first was more like reformed, like intellectual, uh, Presbyterian style of thinking, this is more like the Pentecostal charismatic kind of, you know, air of like, it's, it's all God anyway. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with us. So he's, he'll just, he'll just make it happen for you. Right? Um, I'm dating myself a little bit, but I really like the movie The Matrix. I don't know if you guys ever seen that before. Um, came out a little while ago, right? There's there's those scenes in The Matrix where like they need to learn something, and so they like call up like, "Hey, Dozer Tank, like I need to know how to fly this B-72 helicopter. Can you help me out?" And he's like, "Did you?" And he's like, "Yeah, okay, great. I know how to do it. Like, it's just that zap, right? They like download the information. It's in their brain. They can do it, right? Or like Neo's like, "I just I think I know kung fu, right?" And Morpheus is like, "Show me," you know. Um, but he's like, isn't that be great? Like that's, it's great for a movie, but like, that's just not how it works in real life. 
right? You're just like, you're, you're walking through life and you're like, okay, um, God, I could really use some peace right now. This is, okay, oh, I feel good. This is nice. Or, you know, God, I could really use some patience with my kids because holy, oh, hey, buddy, like you're doing great. Like keep it up. Right, wouldn't that be great if that's all it was? You just pray and like God would zap you with what you need. Like, God, I really need help with this addiction. This is, wow, I don't, I don't even want that anymore. Like, I'm fine. Like, this is great. Thank you, God, for helping me out. This is not how it works. That's not how it works. I love the saying, without him, we can't. Without us, he won't. There is a partnership that we have. God has a part to play. We have a part to play, right? Yes, he's the only one that can transform us, but we have to do stuff to put ourselves in position so that he can actually do that. We have to give him permission. We have to create space in our life so that he can be with us, that we can be with his presence. Uh, it's not just about him. And, and before we get cautious, some of you are getting a little uncomfortable, like, wait a minute, are we talking like works righteousness? What's happening here? No. I love Dallas Willard's quote on this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning. You can't earn it, right? It's not how good you are. That's not what's going to transform you, but we do have to put in effort. It's, it's, it's just not biblical to say that God's supposed to just zap us and then it, uh, it works. So, in order for us to really change and become like the person we ultimately want to become, to be like Jesus, then we need to have a strategy, a plan to really combat or counter what's happening to us unintentionally. Uh, so this is a different paradigm. Take a look at this is intentional spiritual formation. All of these things are counter to, uh, to one of the things we talked about in the unintentional model. The first is teaching. Teaching combats the stories that we believe. Now, Teaching, good teaching, isn't simply about telling you what's right or wrong. It's not just a morality thing like this is right, this is wrong, don't do that, do this. Like that's, that's not as helpful. Uh, what really good teaching does is it undermines the stories that we believe. Like it, it starts to peel back the curtain. Like, hey, you, you thought this was reality. That's not reality, it's this. Like this is really what reality is about. This is really what it means to be human, not the things that you've believed, the stories that you've been told. Uh, it just points out what's really real. Uh, and, and you think about Jesus, how he taught. He often taught in parables. Uh, most of Jesus' teachings didn't come with a direct command. He just talked about reality as it is. The first will be last. Like, there's no command there. Now, there's an implicit, like, uh, underlying, like, if, if you believe that to be true, then that should impact your behavior. But he just said, look, everyone in the world's going to go after stuff, and you're going to try and reach the highest positions because you think that's where it's all. He's like, in reality, in, in the kingdom of God, the first are actually last. That's what it looks like. Or he says stuff like, it's better to give than receive. Like you've been told by the world around you and culture, like to accumulate a bunch of stuff. And then if you have enough stuff, you have enough money in the bank, like that's where freedom and peace and security comes from. But actually it's better for you to give and receive. Like Jesus was just peeling back the curtain on like, here's what it's really all about. This is what reality really is. You've been buying into a story that's not really true. That's what really good teaching does. And this brings to mind Romans, Paul, uh, he's talking, this his masterpiece about the Christian faith, first 11 chapters, he's talking about all the stuff of what it means. And then he's kind of, there's this hinge moment in Romans chapter 12, right at the beginning. In verse two, he says, do not be conformed to this age. All that stuff I've been talking about, but be transformed. There's that word again, that metamorphosis word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Like we need good teaching. We need to open up scriptures and understand what does that mean to me? What's God really saying to me to undo some of these stories, family of origin, the things that we've inherited, the things that we hear on the news, all this stuff that's trying to compete to say this is true. We need good teaching to help us with that. And I say all that and it's, and it's like I'm putting myself on the line. Like if I don't do that, you guys can hold me accountable. Like, hey, you're not teaching very good because that's what you said you're supposed to do. So this, this is the fun part for me. Uh, second thing is practice. Uh, practice are things that will undo and counteract the habits of our life. Uh, Jesus's 
uh, teaching of what it means to follow him and what it means to be in the kingdom of God is most succinctly summarized in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five through seven. It's like, if you want to know what, what is di- discipleship 101, like what is uh, following God 101 look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. But what's interesting of all that, there's a lot of teaching in there. That's the whole, the whole little book of text or that block of text is that he begins it and ends it with practice. So in Matthew 5, 19, it says this, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, all the stuff I'm about to tell you, whoever breaks the least of these and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice the separation there. He doesn't just say if you just believe these things or teach it others, but you actually have to do it. You have to do the things that I'm about to tell you. If you do these things, that's where it's at. And at the very end of the teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 27, he tells a parable. Kids in, in, in kids ministry today are going to hear the same parable. Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Acts on them. It's not okay just to hear them. It's not even enough to, to believe them. You have to act on them. We'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. That's a really ominous way to end a sermon, isn't it? Like you imagine if I was up here preaching and I was just like, and then the house fell, collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. Friends, like, uh, okay, you know, like, that's kind of that's intense, Jesus. But what's the point? He's saying, look, you can know a bunch of stuff. That's great. But if you're not going to put it into action, if you're not going to practice, if you're not going to live it out, if you're not going to start doing these things, then you're, you're, you're foolish. You're not a wise person. You're, you're going to miss out. You're, everything you're building your life on ultimately is going to collapse. It's not a stable foundation that you're building on. When we think about practice, here's the thing I really want you to get in your head. It's not about trying. It's about training. It's not about trying harder and trying to be more Jesus-y and do more Jesus-y stuff. It's about training. It's about practice. Uh, two week, two weekends ago, a week ago, Saturday, I played basketball for the first time in like seven years. And, um, my goal wasn't to try my hardest. My goal was to not hurt myself. I thought that was a good goal at, at my current state of fitness and age. Um, and I, I did pretty well, actually. I was surprised how much of it came back. Uh, part of that was because I did a lot of training. I trained for at least two decades and played basketball, if not daily, multiple times a week for two, two, two decades of my life, for a long time. I love basketball, one of my favorite sports, played it in high school at a high level, played in rules in college, played a lot of like post-college days, and then I had a wife and kids, and you know, things happened, so I haven't played in a while. And, um, but a lot of it came back, and it wasn't because I tried really hard, but because I had done so much training that those things naturally came out of me. Now, if I wanna get better, if I wanna get back to like 25-year-old version of myself, I'm gonna have to then put in a lot more training. Again, not try really hard, because if I try too hard right now without training, what's going to happen? <laughs> I'm going to be up here in like a, a cast or like a crutch or something, or I might not even be here because I can't get out of bed, right? So I've got to train if I want to get better. Same thing when it comes to following Jesus. We have to practice. We have to try or train, not just try. And when we do these practices, and we're going to start next week on the first one, uh, which we call Sabbath, right? It's about literally taking a 24-hour period once a week and stopping resting, delighting in God, worshiping God, that when we do that, those things are going to start to do something to us, just like our habits. They'll start to impact us. They'll start to change the orientation of our hearts, our affections, our desires. And here's the thing. If you want to have the life of Jesus, back to the very first question, if you want to be like Jesus, 
you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. It's our life comes out of our lifestyle. The things we do, how we live our life is how, of course, we live our days and our years. It's the life that we live is just a, a culmination of a bunch of smaller moments we call days. So story, teaching, uh, practices, and of course, community. Community helps us to counter our relationships. So what's the difference between communities and relationships? Well, relationships, you, you have those because of family, because of work, because of affinities, similar uh, stages of life. But community in the, in the context of uh, faith community, it's the people that we inherit a lot of times based on proximity. Um, if we're being honest, people that we probably wouldn't choose if we were given the choice at times, no offense, anybody in the room. Um, some of you wouldn't choose me if you, if you had it up to you to decide who you want to follow Jesus with. But it's the people we inherit based on a lot of different factors, providential circumstance to follow Jesus with. And here's the thing. We cannot follow Jesus alone. Like full stop period. Uh, no matter what you tell me about your disposition, you're more introverted than extroverted. Like you're more cerebral than you are, you know, you know, visceral, like everybody must follow Jesus in community because there is no version of in this book of following Jesus that doesn't come in the context of community. And not only is it that, but it's also because we can't be transformed outside of relationships. We have to be in relationships in order to be transformed because there's two things that community, good community does for us. It exposes us and it encourages us, right? Community exposes us, right? When we're um, talking about premarital, I mean, uh, you know, again, um, this always happens and we've got some younger couples in our community and newly married. It's, it's really exciting to see them in that stage because I remember uh, when I got married and I had come to faith a few years prior to that. And th you know, I was serving a lot. I was in the church and I was like, man, this is great. Like I've been so selfish my whole life. Like I'm going to give away my time and money and I'm going to like bless a bunch of people. This is great. And I got married. And then like a couple weeks in, I'm like, I am like the most selfish person on the planet of the earth. Because what happened was I got this thing called a spouse or a mirror. And that mirror was like, here's who you really are. <laughs> because I couldn't get away from her. Not that I wanted to, but like we're around each other all the time. And we, we're seeing each other in our best moments, our worst moments. And it's like, oh, like the things in my heart were starting to come out in the context of that relationship. That, that brought, that community brought me to who I really was. And this happens in every, every new marriage. It's all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I have a choice to make here. I can either receive that as a gift and embrace that with some hum humility and put my pride to death and be like, oh, I got some work to do. Or I can be like, oh, no, like, no, like, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm not that bad of a person, right? Here's the thing. Marriage didn't make you a bad person. You were already a bad person. Marriage just exposed it, right? And then there's another level, by the way, if you're, if you're married but no, no kids. Then you have kids and you're like, wow, I didn't realize how selfish I was. And then if you have like multiple children, just forget it. Like, there's no hope for you. Like, it's just, okay, God, like, I see how selfish I am. Like, please, I need you. Have mercy on me, right? Exposure. When we're in community, and we see each other consistently and we have meals at each other's homes and we talk about things of the Bible and we're going through these practices together and we're asking for prayer and we're dealing with conflicts within our families of origin and we're having all kinds of issues at work and we've got these people in our life. They're like, hey, this is kind of what we're, this is how we're experiencing you. Like you get exposed, like the stuff that's in you, the stuff that's easy to hide when you're on your own, it starts to come out in your community. And the people that are there, that they love you and there's trust there and there's relational equity, it's like you can, you can hear that from them because you know they love you and you know they, know they, want, you want, they want the best for you. So one of the things that, that good community does is it exposes us. The second thing it does is it encourages us. Like real good community looks at you and says, hey, I, I see who you I really are. Like I see who God's made you to be. I see what he's bringing you to and I'm here for that. And I want, and I want to encourage that. And I want to, I want to pray to that for you. And I want to be there for you as you're figuring that out and going through the tough times of life. Like, I want that for you. Like, we need that if we're going to be transformed. If we're going to counter those other things that are forming us, 
we need people to, to expose us like squeezing a sponge and the, the bad stuff comes out, but then to love us and to love us to Jesus and love us into change and transformation. The final thing is the environment, right? The, the, whole, the, the environment that we're in, uh, we want that to be the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say yes to Jesus, we give him the reins of our life. We make him master, Lord, savior of our life. Uh, his promise is that we then have the spirit of God dwelling within us. And we want that to be our primary reality, that whatever we're doing, everywhere we go, that we're in tune with the God's presence, that we're with him, right? The first thing about what it means to follow Jesus is we understand is to be with Jesus, to be with the spirit of Jesus, that the spirit of God is, is that dominant environment, that dominant reality. Like we, we're always asking, oh, what are you doing? And I'm, I'm, you're, you're in constant communion. Paul says it's a praise without ceasing. But then we're always like, God, what are you doing in this situation? How do you want me to respond to this conversation or this thing I'm in? Or what do you want me to do with this? Or how, oh, you want me to pray for them? Like you're, you're sensing God's presence. He's inviting you into it. We want that to be our primary environment. And then of course, this all happens over time, not just through the hard knocks of life, but most often through suffering. This is the really like strong marketing ploy to follow Jesus, right? Through suffering, right? But it's true, isn't it? Suffering has the greatest potential to transform us if we let it. Those really difficult moments in life, those really hard, hard moments, they can, it's not a guarantee, but they can be the greatest catalyst of change in our lives if we allow it. There, there, look, there's no quick fix, right? You can't microwave character. It takes time. It takes time to become a person of love, to, to live out a life where you're loving God and loving people well and like your actual, like what's naturally coming out of you is not going to happen tomorrow morning. You can't just make that mental ascent and decision and then all of a sudden it's going to take time and that typically happens through difficult, challenging moments. Character can only be grown. It's like a tree. You just you got to plant it, you got to water it, and you got to let's see what happens. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, quote on this. He says, listen, maturity cannot be hurried. It cannot be programmed or tinkered with. There are no steroids available for growing up in Christ more quickly. Transformation is slow. It's hard and it's always worth it. <laughs> Impatient shortcuts land us in the dead ends of immaturity. Uh, James uh, says this about difficult moments. He says, consider it great joy, like mega joy, he says. Consider it mega joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I mean, it's, there's no other way to put it. He says, look, the difficult things in your life, you can receive them as gifts, you can invite God into those moments, allow him to lead and guide you through that, to comfort you, to give you wisdom, to give you peace, and come out the other side becoming more mature, more complete, lacking less things because of that difficult circumstance. Or you can just reject it, struggle with it, cry out to God, yell at him, blame him, all sorts of other responses. But if we allow him, that those things over time, they can really change us. We actually can find ourselves as the years go by, waking up thinking like, wow, I I do feel a little bit more like Jesus. Like I, I'm starting to see more Jesus see things just naturally come out of me. Like this, I think this whole thing is working. So the question again, is transformation possible? Is it actually possible to become like Jesus? Yes, yes it is, but it is not inevitable. It won't just happen because. You will not find yourself one day just waking up if you don't have some intentional plan or strategy for this. One day, you know, in your like later years, 60s, 70s, 80s, and you're like, huh, I'm Jesus today. Sweet. It finally happened for me. Like, it's just not going to work that way. It's possible to get there, but it's not inevitable. So a question, I think, just for all of us is, this week, before we gather again next week, is ask yourself this question and take some time with it. Take some time to pray and to ask God, who are you becoming? 
like run the trajectory out, the habits you have today, what you're doing with your time and money, the things you're doing, the people you're spending time with, the environment that you're in, the, the, the things you're seeing on your screens, like project that for another 10 years, 20, 30 years. Who are you becoming? And do you like that person? Is that who you want to become? Because we're all going to become someone. Every day we're becoming someone. The question is who? Who are we becoming? And the second thing is you think through that, and maybe you don't like the answer, because I, I had a question like that I asked myself about five, six years ago, and I did not like the answer. As a, as a pastor of a large church, uh, campus of a large church, a megachurch, doing all the things, all the activities. We had just the girls at that time. Cam had, hadn't shown up yet. And Chris and I were having a conversation like, hey, our girls are like, what if I'm pastoring this church for 20 years and our girls go through this, this church thing that we're part of and they go through the kids ministry and then the youth ministry and then they're, they're adults. Are they going to be passionate followers of Jesus? Are they going to hear God's voice and obey his voice? Are they going to be in love with him and living out the purpose he has for this life? Is that going to happen? And I did not like the answer. And I was really honest about that. It was, it was a maybe at best, not, not because of it, maybe even in spite of this, this thing that we're a part of. And there's all sorts of things to that, but it just, it just changed the trajectory of our, our, our course of our life. And, and we started doing things like the practices. The first one we did was Sabbath, which it's appropriate that we're going to start that together as a church. So look, we got at least just one day a week, we got to just stop. We got to rest. We got to stop just going. We're not human doings. We're human beings. And we got to start just like being with God more and not running in this, this race that we find ourselves in. Like we got to model something different for our girls if they want to be actual followers of Jesus. We got to show them what that looks like. And so, I, again, I don't know where you're at. I mean, that, that was a conversation, a question I had, and a conversation we had that just, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that conversation. So I just want to give you that same opportunity to ask, who are you becoming? And, and do you like who that person is? And if you don't, please know, you can change. Absolutely can change. There's grace there, and God is so faithful, and you can change with, if you do it on your own, it's impossible. With him, all things are possible. You can change. You can become a person of love. You can, those things that maybe seem like, gosh, you know, I inherited that from my dad and from my, his dad. Man, I don't think that ever is going to change in me. You can change. God can do that. So if you're stuck in a habit, stuck in an addiction, maybe you're just, your relationship with people or with God is stuck or you're burnt out on religion or faith. You're just like, I don't know. It can happen for you. You can change. It's possible. 